Over the years, researchers have tried to classify families according to like levels of health and competence. What's a healthy family look like? What's an unhealthy family look like? And, and uh, when I was on sabbatical last year, I spent a lot of time reading up on family. And uh, one of the most popular or used uh, tools or models is called the Beaver Systems Model, in order to look at different families and classify them. And I found it very helpful. Uh, and there's been quite a few books written based on it. And, and uh, it was helpful looking at my own family of origin, where I came from, as well as our family, as well as our church family. It had all kinds of applications for me. But um, it noted they broke it down into five different levels of uh, health or emotional development, from level five, which they called severely disturbed families, to level one, which were uh, healthiest or very optimal families. And uh, I'll just kind of go through them very quickly. And level five was considered the family in pain or the severely disturbed family. And that was a family where kind of was characterized by confusion and turmoil. There was no leadership uh, from anyone. It was more like anarchy. No one never knew what the rules were. They kind of changed on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis. Uh, life really made no sense for the members of it. The kids were growing up. Conflicts were never dealt with or resolved. There was no sense of clarity or coherence or a sense of, of where we're going. There was never resolution. Uh, and it was more, it was really chaos was really the word, anarchy, kind of like what's going on in Albania, just no leadership. And uh, that was considered the most severely disturbed family. Then level four, they called a borderline family, which was, was instead of anarchy, there was a dictatorship. And it was a family where instead of no rules, everything was a rule. And there was nothing but everything was black and white, either or, inflexibility. Uh, there were very rigid ways of thinking, rigid ways of behavior. Uh, nobody as an individual in the family would ever say, I disagree with what you said. That was level four. Level three is where they put 60% of the families, which was kind of a rule-bound family where it was an advance upward. It wasn't chaos. It wasn't a dictatorship. And it was healthier. People felt some love. And, and, uh, but to feel loved and good about yourself, you needed to obey the dictates of what that family expected. And, and uh, it was kind of like this. If you loved me... Uh, you would do all the things that you know would meet with my approval. And so uh, most families were in this category where they kind of call it the invisible referee in the family. Uh, and the rules of the family generally were more important than the people in it. And uh, there was a certain level of manipulation and intimidation and guilt that was present. And that was really the majority of families. But then level two and level one, which were, were adequate level two and optimal level one, uh, were characterized by an ability to be flexible, an ability to cherish the individual members as well as the whole. There were good feelings in the family. There was trust. There was closeness, and yet there was separateness for the individuals. Uh, conflict was worked through well. Parents were able to help the children move through the various developmental tasks from childhood to adolescence to adulthood and, and in a healthy way bring them through. Uh, but what really characterized level one family, the healthiest, was that, that there was real delight. That the members of the family really delighted in each other. They, they enjoyed each other's presence. And uh, that was really what really took a level two into a level one. Now, last week, we've been talking about marriage for weeks. And, uh, I, and I, as I finished last week, I, I really sensed that we were not finished. Um, and... Uh, so we talked about, if you remember four weeks ago, five weeks ago, leaving and cleaving, and then true sexuality, and, and then what true manhood and true womanhood is. And last week we talked about growing the glory of 
another person? How does one do that? And I'm just going to call that part one. And today we're going to do growing the glory of another person, part two. And then after Easter in two weeks, I will give the final thing on this whole family marriage issue. But, all right, so we have two more. I think that's it. Okay, so. But last week we talked about to grow the glory of another person, there's awe involved. And then there's a commitment involved, the wanting to grow glory in that person. And then we talked about there's, a, there's an issue of incarnating like Christ. And, and, uh, and we, we mentioned how love is not making someone feel good. Love is not the absence of conflict. Not, love is not merely getting along. That love is a commitment that Christ would be formed in this other person. That really loving someone is saying, I, I want to see Christ grow in you. And uh, I want to offer you the love of Christ. And that's, that's the point I want to pick up on today. Many theologians over, over history have talked about Christ, and maybe some of you have heard it. Christ is prophet, he's priest, and he's king. How many of you have heard that? It goes back to really the 16th century, and, and uh, it, it, it's a way of looking at the person of Jesus and who he is and, and what he did and how he functions. Uh, but to love someone and to offer Christ to someone, to love them as Christ loved, means to love as, I'm going to use the categories of prophet, priest, and king. And to maturely love somebody, to maturely love someone as Christ, requires becoming like Christ and offering Christ as a prophet, a priest, and a king. Now that brings us to, to chapter 11 of uh, Mark. Now, in, in scripture, we see Jesus refers to himself, he's a prophet. You know, he's in Luke 4, no prophet is welcome in his own home country. And Moses said, a prophet's going to come among you. He'll be the Messiah. Jesus is a prophet. He's also a priest, the book of Hebrews. He functions as our priest. And he's also a king in the kingdom of God. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And the story of, the, of Palm Sunday, which is today, all three of these are seen in just in power. And I've been thinking about this for quite a while and looking forward to Palm Sunday. And uh, the context here is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And many of you know the story. Uh, Jerusalem at this time is, is in Passover. Uh, generally, the population of Jerusalem was about 260,000 people. It's four times that size during this festival, which means it's, it's 2.6 million people in the city. It's packed. Um, it's a mass of humanity. If you've seen pictures of uh, Mecca during Ramadan and the masses of people there, that's what Jerusalem was like during Passover. And the masses of of humanity in one spot, and, and uh, it was a great campus. The, the temple was, was, was the building. It towered over all the other buildings, and, and it had a big, big columns you'd walk into, into the, what was called the court of the Gentiles, where women and children and Gentiles were allowed into, and, and tens of thousands would be there. And, and then for, for uh, those who were Jewish men and women, they could go beyond that. There was a wall, they could go into what was called the, uh, the courts, of the Israelites, where men and women could go. And then beyond that, there was a holy place where only men could go. And, and then there was the Holy of Holies, where once a year a Jewish priest would go and offer sacrifice for the sins of, of the nation. But now Jesus simply, in this passage, is, is going to go to the outer court. That's what we're going to read about. He goes to the, the court of the Gentiles, where there's tens of thousands of people. And uh, he's, going to, he's going to love people. He's going to function as prophet, priest, and king, as we're going to see in just a few minutes. He's going to model for us something of the way that we're to function. Now, in that temple, you'll see he's going to overthrow the tables of the money changers. And because in those days, uh, you had to offer sacrifice to, uh, you know, for your sins. And so the, the religious system had become corrupt. And so people who generally were poor from outside Jerusalem would have to buy lambs and goats and pigeons from these 
uh, religious authorities, which basically made it a marketplace. It was a money-making scheme, and people basically were having a tough time getting to God because the religious system or the church in that day was in the way, basically. And so Jesus comes into this situation, and he functions as a prophet, priest, and a king, and he needs to love in a healthy way. And he models for us about what it means to grow the glory of another person. And uh, so we'll see Jesus. He's meek and he's mild, yes. But he's also, in this passage, he's judgmental. And uh, he can seem, he's disgusted with what's going on. So, let's read it together. Mark chapter 11. I'll begin with verse 1 and then we'll jump. No, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, and he says, go to a village and get basically a, a, a donkey or a cult. Verse 7. When they brought the cult to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This is a king. Hosanna in the highest. And so Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple And he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. And because it was not the season for figs, because it was not the season for figs, then he said to the fig tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. He says, Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever... You ask for in prayer. What a verse. Believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Okay. So, I want to read this from the perspective of growing the glory of another person. All right, let's begin with just this whole issue of prophetic love. All right, now, get this word in your mind, okay? Prophetic love disrupts. Okay? Jesus here prophetically loves people. But he disrupts. I'm going to argue in just a minute. If you are going to prophetically love, it requires disruption. That you bring disruption at times into people's lives. Now what Jesus does here is uh, he visits the most important building in the city. He goes to the temple. He, he goes to the, 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 he doesn't go to the United Nations, he doesn't go to the Empire State Building, he doesn't go to Rockefeller Center or Wall Street. He goes to the church. He goes to the place of worship. He goes to the people of God because he knows that if that institution is not healthy, 
the society and the nation will not be healthy. And so Jesus goes right to the core of the problem. What's interesting to me is he doesn't go to Jericho and go after the thieves. He doesn't go after the prostitutes. He doesn't go after the um, slave traders. He goes after the church. He goes right to the heart of the temple because he knows that where the temple goes, so goes the nation. And the same way God knows, so goes the church, so goes the people of God, so goes the nation. The message is a translation of the New Testament written by Eugene Peterson. Great translation of the Bible. I recommend it. But he translates the end of Ephesians 1 uh, about Jesus being the head of the church over all powers and principalities in the, in the universe by saying, the church is not periphery to the world. The world is periphery to the church in God's sights. In other words, the center of the heart of God on where society, where the world, where his plan is going is centered in and around his people. So Jesus disrupts, walks right into the people of God and he disrupts. As we read in verse 15, he, he, th- he begins throwing out people, buying and selling. He, he's not allowing anyone to buy and sell any longer. And, and uh, just try to imagine that this, this outer court where he was doing this what was immense. We're talking about tens of thousands of people, and, and he's overturning tables. I mean, he's causing a riot in this place. And then he's cursing a fig tree because it's not bearing fruit to have a demonstration of the fact that your lives bear no fruit. And referring to the Israelites, or the believers of that day, that you are speaking and you are supposedly believers, but in terms of fruit flowing out of your life, there's nothing here. And he curses a fig tree and... and um, what he does is a prophetic love, and what Jesus does here is he exposes the hardness of their heart. And you see, prophetic love exposes the heart. And it invites people to God. It invites people to get a pathway back to God. Jesus is clearing the, he's clearing the temple area. And he is making a way, he's teaching on prayer, he's making a way for people to get to God... But he is disrupting the status quo the way everybody's been functioning for I don't know how many years, but minimally for a couple of generations. And he is disrupting the whole way this system works because it's unhealthy, it's idolatrous, it's an offense, and it's all a pretend and a lie. And he walks in and he disrupts it because he loves them. But it's a disruptive, prophetic love. Now you see... To prophetically love people, you have to be able to see idolatry. In other words, to state the obvious. Because as you know, it's very easy to be in, in, in situations and, and not state the obvious. Let me come back to this for a minute. To prophetically love someone, you need to become an expert in sin. Not sinning. Cross that off the tape, Doug. You must become an expert in, in, in sin. In other words, do you realize that everyone was functioning in this system here and in, in buying and selling doves, but no one's picking up the fact that this is idolatrous. This is, this is sick. Everyone's just kind of moving along with it. And, and part of prophetically loving means that, that I, I, number one is I am so aware of my sin. I'm an expert in my own sin first. I know the depth of my sin and how, and how my heart functions. People say to me, Peter, how do you know like my sin? I say, you know, I know mine, that's why. I mean, if I'm able to articulate yours so well, it's because 
I've taken the time to look at my own ugliness. And therefore, it makes me understand yours. But it's why, that's why people who are always accusing other people of not looking at themselves are, are not very prophetically loving people. They're very judgmental people. Pharisees were very good at that. But they weren't prophetically loving. But anyway, so here's Jesus. And, 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 and uh, it's not a superficial thing here. And it's interesting, in Jeremiah... His word to the priests and the prophets of his day was, he goes, you guys, you're deceitful, prophets and priests, because you dress the wound of my people, says God, as though it were not serious. You say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And you see, prophetically loving people is not say, hey, you're sinning, stop it! Nor is it, oh, you're, you're sinning, let me just encourage you and comfort you and, and connect with you and be a priest and love you, and, and, uh, because that's not enough to change the human heart. In other words, prophetically loving requires that you understand that, that sin is deeply entrenched in people's lives. I, I think of, I, you know what my illustration is? It's like getting gum in your hair. You ever try to get gum out of your hair? I know if you have small children like me, you want to, you want to strangle your children, first of all. But it's very difficult to get gum out of hair. Or, or if you've ever uh, tried to get wallpaper off, that's... that's been there since, in our old house we bought, was since 1919. We could not get the wallpaper off and throwing chemicals on it and, 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 and hot water and scraping. I finally just put sheetrock over it because it was too difficult to get off. People who love prophetically, like Jesus, understand that sin is so deeply entrenched in people's souls that the temptation is just throw some sheetrock over it. Or just paint it and hope it goes away. But people themselves don't even see it. And that if they don't have prophetic, people prophetically loving them, they're not going to change. Jesus understood that. So did Jeremiah. And so, and so Jesus is gonna, is, catches and exposes their sin at just the right moment. Again, there's, there's a timing issue here. And then, because he's trying to bring their hearts to repentance. And then he offers them hope. He doesn't just slam them. He, 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 he provokes them to repentance. He, 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 he exposes their sin. And then he offers them hope as he talks about prayer and the way of God and, and the cross. And, and he brings them that direction too. Now, most of us, you know, I think of the parable of the prodigal son, which was a judgment against the Pharisees. Remember? Remember? Because you, you, they didn't like him meeting with tax collectors and sinners. But then at, at the parable of the prodigal son at the end, Jesus gives a picture of God the Father, and even the elder son, which is the Pharisees, even you can come in, it's for you too. And, and he, he, he's prophetically disrupting their lives, but he's offering hope. And that's true prophetic love. Now, you see, here, here's the thing with us. Most of us don't like uncomfortable situations. Most of us. In other words, when, 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 when something is... is you know, is uncomfortable and you're with a person or a situation, most of us say, you know, I don't really feel good about this, but it's really not my place to say anything. And so we don't. Any of you know the, the children's story, The Emperor's New Clothes? Yeah. Story about, you know, there was an emperor and he was very vain and concerned about his appearance. And so two tailors came to him to prey on his pride, basically, and said that we have discovered a superior material but only the truly wise can see it. And we make all our clothes with a superior material. And so the emperor doesn't want to look like a, well, doesn't want to look like a fool. And so and he's afraid to say the truth. So he says, because there was no material. It was invisible. And uh, so he believes it. Well, yeah, I, I see it. And he plays along with it, this king. 
And so the king orders a special suit made for a special parade. And his counselors, so he's basically, you know, made with this invisible material. He's walking around in his underwear, at least in my book. <laughs> and his counselors, his counselors won't tell him the truth. They don't want to lose their heads. Oh, king, that's beautiful, you know, and the, you know, they kind of going along with it. And the day of the parade comes. And he goes to the parade, and he's in his underwear, and, and uh, you know, there's non-existent material, but no one's saying anything because he's the king. And, uh, but everybody senses it's uncomfortable. Everybody knows it's just foolish. But no one has the courage to say something until this little child has the courage to say, the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> that is prophetic love. Because the person thinks everything's glorious. And maybe many others realize that they get close to the situation and say, this is not really, um, this is uncomfortable. But most people, believers included, don't say anything because we don't want to disrupt. And so we just kind of hope it goes away. And we, we don't, and we do is we don't love like Jesus loved. Now, in marriage, what does this, you know, what does this look like? And I, you know, I um, had a friend a few months ago that had left his wife. And, <clears throat> um, you know, prophetic love was to say to him that uh, you know, you've just, you know, you're having an affair and you've left her for another woman, but you've never looked at you in this process. And you're really a coward. You're a coward because your whole life is marked by a pattern of blaming other people and running away. That was, I thought it was prophetically loving. He didn't want to hear it, but I told him anyway. You know, but I wasn't mad at him. It was my wife saying to me the other day, we had someone over for dinner, and, and I was talking about something, or I think our church, you know, and, and he said, you know, she said to me afterwards, she goes, Pete, you know, you're exaggerating. It was really, it was prophetically loving. It was, it was nice, it hurt, you know. She goes, I'd rather see us speak out of our brokenness. And, uh, but that was prophetic love. It's, it's a wife saying to a husband, you know, I, honey, I know that you think that everything's good, but you're not walking in reality. Uh, I'm really not very happy. That's prophetically loving. It's the truth. It's, it's a friend saying, you know, when this happened recently to my wife and somebody made a racist remark, and my wife very simply said to this woman, uh, not a believer, just said, you know, you, you are a racist. You realize you are a racist. No, not a, no, you listen to yourself. You have no clothes on. And, um, or to say, you know, Joey, when you spoke about Sam over here, do you realize you, you murdered him? Do you realize that biblically, you, in the name of Jesus, you murdered him? You, you Mark 5, you, I mean, Matthew 5, you killed him. And, uh, <clears throat> or someone says, you know, I think of a fellow saying, I'm, I'm going uh, to... He has a vision of himself as this, as this uh, basically as Billy Graham. But it was, it was, it was, all, it was ego. And to say to him, you know, and I didn't. This fellow moved away since then. I never forgot it. You know, he was always saying to himself, I'm going to be this, preach to tens of thousands. I saw it in a dream and a vision. But, you know, I used to always feel uncomfortable because I, I just never felt the genuineness of it. I just always felt it was more him than it was God, you know. And, and I just never had the courage to say, you know, I, you know Victor, I, I don't know if I really see it. 
I, I think there's really more of you in this vision than God, really. Uh, and I guess marriage was a disaster. You know, it's like my daughter. My daughter Maria says all the time, I'm going to be a professional basketball player. I'm going to be a professional basketball player, you know. And, and so at one point we said, you're not going to be a professional basketball player. Why? But, well, it takes practice, like at least three hours a day. Really? You know what I mean? <laughs> but I mean, prophetic love is like, let's not live under this illusion, you know, you're going to be a professional basketball player. You know, or, or, or as you're with someone who is, you know, um, sharing the word, even. And you're uncomfortable. You probably had this situation, and you're uncomfortable, and, and people say, you know, at the right time, do you know I'm really uncomfortable? Because I, I really feel like you're really an angry, critical person, and that you're speaking God and love, but I'm, it's, it's anger and criticism that's coming out. But as you know, in the body of Christ, you can live your whole life, and no brother or sister will love you enough to tell you the truth. And the truth is you're like an emperor walking around with no clothes on, but no one's saying anything, hoping somebody else does it. And nobody else does because everyone's afraid of what will happen if I do. And so we don't love a lot like Christ. You know, it's, it's, it's going into a family or a school, and, and it's not healthy, but it's offering hope, but it's being honest. It's, it's prophetically loving, and it's not a very difficult thing to do. You see, to be a prophet, anybody, I mean, we're all called to prophetically love people, to disrupt every single one of us. Why? Because we're called to be like Jesus. But it requires a, a willingness to think deeply about the human condition. Not superficially about people, but deeply about people. And not just look at everything on surface, but to go deeper. And to look at your own heart. It's to, it's to, it's to ponder the darkness of the human heart. Many of us don't think the human heart is a very ugly, depraved place. It really is. It really is. We think that, some of you think that because I'm up here, mine's not dark enough. It is, all right? Get close to me. It is, all right? And, but we want to think that people's are not. But we are all children of Adam. We're in Christ now. If you've come to Jesus Christ, you're a new creation. But the reality is you are still in the flesh. We are not in heaven yet. and We live on earth, and we still have something in us. We're affected by the fall, by sin. And that is reality. And so, yes, I have a new heart, but I still have flesh in me, and it affects me. And, uh, but there's a tendency in all of us to flee from God and flee from truth. And uh, it requires prophetic love to help to love people like Christ did. So here, our struggle is, you know, we, we, we flee from short-term consequences. I mean, I, don't, I want people to like me. I, don't, I, want, I want everybody to like me. And because uh, if I, you know, if I say these things... I, you might not like me. And if you don't like me, then I feel bad too. And so that becomes my God, right? That becomes my idol. My whole life is driven by you liking me. And I really bow to that more than loving you and loving Christ and bowing to him. And it's idolatry. That's worth a whole sermon, isn't it? Just a fear of people becoming an idol that we bow to more than anything else in our lives. But if I love you enough, that even if it does cost me a relationship, which hopefully it will not, if it's done with mercy, and as a, if I'm not just a prophet, but a priest and a king, if I do all three like Christ, uh, but the truth is things will not necessarily turn out the way I want. But it's misplaced mercy. It's not mercy and love to say nothing. Hear me on that. If Jesus did not walk into Palm Sunday 
and overturn these tables and curse that fig tree and speak truth and disrupt life, that would not have been loving. And uh, prophetic truth can be costly. You know what prophetic truth requires? It requires faith in God. It really does. It requires faith. You know something? Because God is God, and I am called to love. Prophetically, I'm called to love as a priest. I'm called to love as a king. And God is God. He's responsible for the rest. Paul got, you know, killed. Who knows what happens? But to do that is my calling. And it requires real faith in God. Amen, everybody? Got that? All right, let's go on to priests. Because some people are very strong in prophetically loving. There's a few of you here that you're strong in prophetically loving. But you're very poor at being a priest. Jesus is also a priest. And a priest, if you remember, brings a, would bring the Jews to God and would bring the believers to God and brings God to the people. And Jesus in Hebrews 4 is referred to over and over again as our, our priest. He's our high priest. And, and uh, you know, we do not have a high priest, it says in Hebrews 4, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he's been tempted in every way just like us. He's human. He's been there. And he offers grace and help in the time of need. So you can come to the throne of grace. That's our priest. And so the priest, if if the prophet disrupts, the priest comforts. The priest brings comfort. The priest sees the person from the eyes of God and says, here's Glenn. No matter if he's in full rebellion or whatever it might be, but sees him broken, wherever he is, with the eyes of God and offers a taste of the goodness of God to him. It seeks to bring God to him or him to God. It's it's comfort. It's the Lord loves you. God's reaching out to you. The Father's looking for you. It's the priest saying, I'm here in between you and God. I want to bring you to God. And it's comfort. it's, It's listening to the person and entering into their world. Remember the incarnation last week? It's listening... And entering in, incarnating like Christ, and it's and it's it's proclaiming there is forgiveness of sin for you, Laurel. There is forgiveness of sin. There is a path back to God, and a priest offers that comfort and forgiveness of God to people, and and so it invites people. Say you're you're angry, you're bitter, you want to kill this guy, and he says, bring that to God. Just bring it to God where you're at. Just like David used to do in the Psalms. Remember David? Did you realize there are more Psalms of complaining and lamenting than there are Psalms of praise? Did you know that? And so a priest says, go ahead! Get it out! God won't be shaken. You're disoriented, you're confused, you don't know what's going on. Just bring it to God. Because God's going to meet you there. He loves you. And, and it brings comfort and, and walks with that person through that disorientation, through the confusion, through the anger, through the rage, and, uh, and understands, the priest understands the heartache, understands the struggle, understands the pain, and feels it, and, and incarnates it. That's a priest. So, I, yeah, pre- being a priest is tough. Tough. Tough for me. In a marriage, what does it look like to be a priest? To, love, to priestly love somebody means that as my spouse shares her pain, 
about whether it's her family or an old relationship she had. And I don't like hearing it. It's hard for me. It's incarnating. It's really listening. And going into that, like Christ, dying to self, leaving aside my glory, and bringing comfort, bringing priestly love. And say, oh, God loves you. Not making analysis, but it's that part of Christ as priest. It's priestly loving her. It's, you know, it's someone I was thinking, a couple guys share with me, they're in their own businesses in our own congregation, and just the struggle of being in your own business, and the pain of living like that, where you don't know on a monthly basis, you're trying to make this business go, you're trying to serve God, and and, and give to God and everything else. And, 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 and I, I had lunch with this one brother at IHOP, and, and uh, you know, someone had slammed him, you know. And, oh, I slammed him. <laughs> I slammed him. And I told him. And he, told, he started telling me about, you know, just the, the, the debt he had incurred and, and that, you know, he was fighting for his life in his business. Just, he said, I'm fighting for my life. You know, I'm missing some Sundays. I'm fighting for my life right now. And well, just, just to feel it, it took a while. Like, I left there just in pain for the guy. But I realized I hadn't taken the time to priestly love him. I was pretty good at prophetically loving him. But I hadn't really priestly loved him. And it changed me after that, after that uh, incident. You know, I think when you pray for people, we pray for people at the end of the service, or you pray for someone, that is being a priest. That is bringing comfort. That is, that is priestly loving someone. That's why it's wonderful to get a chance to pray for people. All right, let me go on here. Time, time's ticking. I, you know, I, I think of like being a priest. There's one fellow, Ron, I know that he, like when I would share with him some struggles or difficulties, sometimes he would start weeping. And I'd say, why are you weeping? He says, because I can just feel how hard that must be. I was like, kidding. Well, yeah. dramatic, aren't you? I mean, but he, he was really, I mean, he was really entering into priestly loving me. You know, I, I thought of Jesus. I mean, how could Jesus, prophet, priest, and king, why is it that tax collectors and sinners, people living in, in prostitution, in child abusers, rapists, in rebellion against God, who had not yet repented, how, did they, how come they loved to be with Jesus? You ever think about that? Why did they love to be with Jesus? He was a, wasn't he a prophet? Yes. But they loved to be with him because he loved with a priestly love. That's why prophetic love, truly exercised, is also a mature love, also is a priestly love. And so even though it disrupts and it's hard, the prophetic love, you still want to be with that person. Because you know there's a priestly love there. And so you don't want to run away. And I think many of us who are good at prophetic love, which tends to be my strength, uh, aren't very good at priestly love. And, uh, you know, I think of Jesus. Uh, you know, if your priestly love is maturing, people do want to be with you. They don't run from you. You know, I think of Jesus with the 12 disciples here. They're about to betray him. They're, they're up and down. Peter's about to cut off some ears, you know, and falling in water, drowning. I mean, they're just they're a mess. Thomas is going to deny him, and Simon is zealous, thinking of building an empire, and... I mean, they're just a mess. And, and yet Jesus is so priestly, these 12 disciples. I mean, he's just to Judas. I mean, he offers Judas, you know, the way to the very end. He washes his feet. He offers him communion. I mean, my goodness. 
And here he's teaching them about prayer. Whatever you ask for, it will be done to you. I mean, he's just, he's so priestly in loving these 12 disciples. But he's prophetically disrupting their lives over and over again, too. But he just does it so beautiful. Okay, let's go on to this king thing. Let me try to sum up, summarize this. So, we want to love prophetically. We want to grow the glory of your spouse if you're married, of your single, your friends around you. We want to love like Christ. We want people to grow into the person of Jesus Christ. It requires we love as he does. It's a commitment that Christ be formed in them. So I want to prophetically love, disrupt. I want to priestly love people. I want to comfort. But there's also a kingly aspect of his love. And that kingly love directs. It gives direction. It gives direction. Jesus is the king. He gives a lot of direction at the right time. And, and, and it, it's not quick advice, you know, one, two, three. You have someone come to you for advice, and you boom, 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 and you afterwards just say, I should never have said that. Or, or you went to somebody else, and they started giving you all this advice. And you're like, I wish they just listened first, you know. God is the warrior king. God's a warrior. Men will be warriors, women to be warriors. God's a warrior. Psalm 45. And he, how does God deal with us? He leads us as our king. He, he offers us uh, to lead us to maturity. He's trying to lead you to maturity right now. He's trying to lead me to maturity. He's seeking to lead his church to maturity. And so he's offering leadership and direction. He's not pushing us. But, um, and Jesus here is going to teach about the house of prayer He's going to teach about, I mean, there's a tremendous section on prayer, verses 23 and 24, which is worth a sermon in and of itself. He's saying, listen, guys, you may, not, you may be a mess right now, but let me tell you something about prayer. Because if you can catch this about prayer, it'll serve you well the rest of your lives. And that is whatever you ask, verse 23 and 24, whatever you ask, I mean, uh, limitless, in prayer, it will be believed that you've received it and it will be done for you. Mountains will move. If you can get a hold of the power of prayer and he offers them direction about how to confront the problems they're going to face, how to confront the mountains, and he gives them some direction about prayer, about life, and about how to live it. And so it's, it's breathtaking. And so what does that mean? It means, how do I be a king? How do I kingly love you? It means taking my child, Maria, who's got her hair cut really short, who's got to go to school the next day, and the kids are going to make fun of her. It's, it's, it's not just being, you know, prophetic, those kids, you know. Or being priestly, oh, honey, it's going to really be hard. Kingly love is to say, let's walk through the day together. What are you going to say when so-and-so says, you look like a boy? How are you going to respond? But it's role-playing, kingly love, and walking her through that. It's, it's, it's saying to a young person, which I said to someone recently, I said, you know, you really want to consider going finishing college and not taking a quick pay right now. It'll serve you well for the rest of your life. It's, it's encouraging your spouse drive. It's encouraging your spouse to go back to college or be what God called them to be. Maybe they stopped somewhere short and what you think they should have been. It's, it's giving someone wisdom about not just confront that person, but how do you do it in a, in a way that's godly. It's giving some, some help. Here's a pamphlet that'll help you. It's, 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 you know, Jerry said to me more than once, Pete, you know, this is a better way to speak to the kids. And, you know, nicely but that wasn't really good. You know, the ultimate skill of life, you know the ultimate skill of life is how to love. That is the ultimate skill in the kingdom of God. And kingly love aids people practically in that process of maturing. You know, my wife told me to lose weight recently, and she gave me some direct tips on desserts, calories, 
eating between meals. But it was nice. I appreciated it. It's someone gives you one side of the story. Proverbs says, uh, don't make a decision until you hear the other side. It's very practical wisdom. How do you walk out conflicts and situations you find yourself in? It's, it's being, not doing. I, I was talking to someone about your life is to be about being and not doing. And, and therefore, you, your, your self-worth is not defined by these measurable things, like how good you look. I mean, if, if you're not beautiful because someone says you're beautiful, or you're not ugly because somebody says you're ugly. Uh, that's a transient way of defining if you're beautiful or not. I mean, if you get plastic surgery, you're still the same person before you had the nose job. And your, 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 your worth is not based on these transient things that, and many of us here in the fashion industry and in the arts and, and tremendous focus on these externals, and, but being kingly, say, what does it mean to live differently than that? To have your identity really rooted in the fact of you are a precious human being and beautiful because you are made in God's image. And on top of that, you're his son, and you don't have to prove anything to anybody. And it's just beautiful. Anyway, kingly leading in that. I, I, you know, I, I, if I could summarize this, I think of Dead Man Walking, that movie. I mentioned it once before. Sister Helen, this guy was on death row, and he had raped and killed two teenagers. Horrible crime. And it's a true story about a, about a, a nun down south. And, and her getting involved with this death row inmate who does go to his death, and she loves him as a priest. She gets into his life, um, and which really she incarnates. And then she's also prophetically loving him because she confronts him with his denial, but in a very loving way. But she does confront him. Um, and, she, but she, and then she offers him hope. And then as a, as a kingly love, she gives him direction about at the end to ask forgiveness. And she is there to the bitter end to this guy when he actually is killed by lethal injection. But it's a prophetic love that disrupts. It's a, it's, a, it's a priestly love and it comforts. But it's a kingly love that directs. It says these are the steps to go out. Now, if you want to mature in Christ, all these three are in Christ perfectly. And that's why it's, it, it, you, you can't separate them that Jesus is now being prophet. No, because when Jesus is prophetically loving, he's also being a priest and a king. When he's being a priest, he's also being a prophet and a king. When he's kingly directing, he's also being prophetic and, and priestly. And my point is that Jesus is all these perfectly in one. And uh, I think what happens is we, we, we tend to lean, most of us, to one or the other. And the problem is if, you're not mat if, if maturity in Christ means I'm growing in all three. I say this again. We're not talking about gifts here. We're talking about life. We're talking about growing into the image of Jesus. And so if you're strong in prophetically loving, that's great. But you know something? If you're not maturing in Christ and growing as a priest and a king, uh, you are, everything is, is all mystery and prophetically and, and complex and few can comprehend it. And you're probably walking in some pride. You're probably hurting some people. Or if you're all priest, comfort, encouragement, you're living under the illusion that life is without pain and conflict. And you're probably living a lot of pretending. Or if you're loving, you know, mostly as a king, directing people and leading people, uh, you're probably running over people. And your life is more task than it is people, and you probably end up falling into dictatorship and controlling and manipulation, which is a tendency for people who are growing in king or into being a kingly, but they're not growing as priests and prophets. And it becomes off balance too. So my question in closing is, which one of these three do you need to grow in today? Which one of these three 
do you need to grow in? I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And uh, here's what I want to do. I want to pray, and uh, then we're going to answer that question. Okay, this morning. Remember, a prophet disrupts. Just write this down somewhere. A priest comforts. And a king directs and leads. Now, you want to grow the glory of people. You want to love people as Christ loves people. You want to mature as a person, as a believer in Christ. You will set me free.